topic, you can have the premiere of this. So list is said like, basically we have three ways of playing. Okay. One is the authentic uh, uh, way that the composer intended his piece to be played. Secondly is the same, but adapted to the new instruments. Mm -hmm. And thirdly, he said, it's basically like I have to play all the time for the audiences, which is they want, they want to hear a charlatan. I sometimes have the feeling that today it's a lot about the performer and maybe too little about what the composer would have wanted. And to, to share a secret, that was already a problem early 19th century. Hello, welcome to And If Love Remains. I am just thrilled to have as a guest, Veen Vinters. Um, I, somebody who I have been following on YouTube for about a year or so. Um, and he's got some very interesting um, ideas, controversial in some circles, about, uh, about music, about classical music and, and historical music. Um, I, I, what, would, how would you, what would you consider yourself? I know you're a keyboardist, specifically an organist, um, but you also play um, the harpsichord, the piano, um, very the well, the clavichord, yeah. yes. And what, um, and, and, but you're also a music historian, a music reconstructionist. How, how would you describe yourself? Well, I think you did a pretty well job. I mean, uh, I play keyboard instrument. I started with, uh, with the organ, classical organ, and I went to Amsterdam in the 90s, or the previous century, so to say, already. <laughs> and then, um, not to make us feel old, but right. anyways, there I started with, uh, with organ uh, in, a, in a wonderful class of Jacques van Oortmessen, and I was introduced to so many aspects of what we would call today early music. That's typically what in, I think in those conservatories here in Europe, what the organ uh, study is about. And after two years, I entered the, as a second main instrument, also piano class. And basically from that, from those two worlds, actually, it was unique. I was in a unique position in a way to combine those two worlds from organ, which is basically considered early music and piano, which was, I mean, the mainstream piano class, I would say mainstream, what we would say today, mainstream meaning the way pianists play. And so I started to see some things that were a little bit off. And there started my, you know, my interest in combining all of that um, stuff together. But calling me a musicologist is maybe a little bit overrating myself. I am a musician who from a very practical standpoint tries to understand the score. In fact, that's what you could say. Yeah, trying to understand the score. I think that's I think that's powerful. I think uh, um, trying to read a score is really an art in itself. Trying to understand what a composer's intentions are or were, and making that um, or turning that into um, a, a an audio symbol of what of what we hear is 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 a powerful thing, and, and it's something that we all try to achieve as a musician. Um, and try to, I, some people I think try to, to interpret things in their own way and other people try to very um, systematically um, figure out what the composer was intending. What, what's your approach on, on this? Well, to say it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you say musical, musical notation is something, if you compare that to words, it's even, I mean, words have a meaning that we can, we can, we can study the meaning of a word that was used 200 years ago to, by putting it into a context. We have a lot of text. But musical notes, of course, are what they are. They are a very sober and actually very poor reflection of what is in the composer's mind. And 
if you add on top of that the idea that notation is something that changes during time. Notation in the 17th century was not the same as in the 18th century, not the same as in the 19th century. It's somehow connected, right. but still there were some, I would say, some, some things that people just knew, that they just accepted. So notation is always given in a time where some rules were there that we might have lost or not see as much, uh, as clear as they did in, in those days. So when, when, when we say today, like, the score should be in the center of, of it all, we actually mean the intentions, the musical intentions that the composer had in mind, those should be always front and center of what we do. And perhaps we must add a little aspect to that, but that might be already a little bit for provocation. <laughs> I sometimes have the feeling that today it's a lot about the performer mm -hmm. and maybe a little too little about what the composer would have wanted and to, to share a secret with you or maybe not a secret even, that was already a problem early 19th century. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, there, I know there's this, uh, an idea that I've heard where um, when a composer writes a music and, and it's performed, there's really three composers in a way. There's the composer who wrote the music, there's the artist that performs the music. And I want to get into that a little bit about how, you know, um, it's a relative, I won't say new, but it's relatively new for artists to, to play um, other composers where, where composers played their own work earlier. And... Um, and then the third is the audience and how they interpret it and really the public, you know, for example, um, uh, you know, how, how we hear a, a piece of music. I had this conversation with a friend of mine, um, a, a wonderful pianist about how, how we hear music cannot be exactly the same as how a 19th century person heard music and to, to try to, to put our, um, Oh, oh, the, the how we hear things into that context is literally impossible. <laughs> and yeah, that's a great point because that's what we should realize. The whole early music movement started, of course, from the idea to reconstruct that music from that time. But there is a lot we can say about that, but that may be for later. But we will never be able anymore to reconstruct that time. That's right. gone forever. And every day that we live is a day further away from Beethoven and Chopin and all the others. The conventions change, new ideas come to surface, and what have you. And but the idea is interesting. Yes. How many people want to go back in time to hear Chopin play, to hear Bach play, to hear Beethoven play? But yet, if you come with an idea. Uh, like, listen, guys, we are, have some facts that we might overlook that are very important to reconstruct that performance because that's what we're then looking for. We are reconstructing not the music, we are, we are reconstructing the performance that Beethoven would have given from his Hammerklavier Sonata, right? But if you, if you then bring to the surface some forgotten elements or some elements that we might claim to look into very, very seriously, but if you look into the music itself and the performances we actually overlook all the time, then people say, yeah, but it cannot ha can never have been like that. So there is something, a twist here that we have to correct. Do we really want to go back in time? Is, it, is that really what we want? Well, then I have news for you. Then we have to put everything we know aside Mm -hmm. and start from scratch, not once in your lifetime, but every day. 
right. because you will you come across so many things that you say oh my god how how can i how can i interpret this how can i do that this doesn't work or this doesn't make sense so to make it work and that changes your view every day the great thing about this is it's very exciting to do that it is very exciting and, and i love your passion that's one of the things that really attracted me to to your channel by the way this is Vin vinters he is um the the owner the he owns authenticsound.org is that correct yes and also the youtube channel authentic sound um and and so let's discuss a little bit the problem we, we talked about it a little bit the, the problem being um do we want to if we had a time machine and can go back and listen to how bach played or how beto or even more precisely if we had a time machine and a, and a mind machine where we could uh hear what beethoven had in mind before he wrote down the music um <laughs> What would that sound like? What would that be like? Is that is that articulating the problem properly? Well, in fact, what yeah, what what we are looking for, at least what we, um, well, what we are looking for, what we would hope to reconstruct is, of course, those ten seconds before Beethoven started to note down his Fifth Symphony. What was going on in his mind? Right. And we will never ever be able to do that. But yeah, I mean, what we are focusing on now in the channel a lot is tempo reconstruction. It has always been such a surprise for me that those metronome marks, which in fact are nothing less than the exact tempo indications those composers left, that we are just actually in the reality ignore those because they they will bring us closer than anything else. Okay, that's a great point. That's what I wanted to ask you because you have been focusing a lot on the tempo reconstruction and, and what that is and, and, and your ideas. Tell me um, why is that so critical and a lot because a lot of my listeners aren't uh you know they aren't musicians um specifically but but why is that so critical for you to get the tempo correct and why um how does that change the whole um feel of a piece or or, or you know what you're trying to communicate through music well yeah to start with there is i would say people are sometimes confused when they hear me say like there is no right and wrong and i mean by that we as musicians today are entitled to our own opinions, to our own interpretations. Mm -hmm. We are solely responsible for what we bring to our audiences. So I like to make this disclaimer because if you talk about tempo reconstruction and certainly about things that, you know, can pinpoint people to a certain aspect of interpretation that they cannot escape anymore, then you very often, very quickly get the idea of, yeah, that's being dogmatic. But it's not about that. So you have you have a ton of tons of options today, but if you want to reconstruct the original intention of the composer, the authentic intention, if you would if you would say like that, then tempo is super important because even even if a musician today is not interested really in metronome marks, all musicians on a certain level, I would say, are really working with their tempi because tempo changes, changing tempo changes everything. Not only the articulation, not only the phrasing, not only the touch of the piano, whatever instrument you play, but also the character of the piece. And once you're dealing with that, you know that changing a few beats per minute in a piece is already enough mm -hmm. to make the piece sound different. So it's not hard to understand that if we want to go back in time in our time machine, that the metronome is our time machine because right. Beethoven 
did not give us all these metronome numbers because he, he thought, well, those tempo indications were like, you know, whatever, you do whatever you want with them. Chopin to that, Schumann, uh, Mendelssohn, we have thousands and thousands of tempo indications of that. Well, time. I, think, I think that's an important point. A lot of times, you know, these tempo indications, they're not added by editors later a lot of times. A lot of times they're, they're added by the composers themselves. This is what they wanted. Is that correct? Exactly. And that's what, 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 what makes this discussion so difficult. Because if you go on stage with people like say, we, we advocate the WBMP, which is the whole beat metronome practice, where basically like in still physics today, the full swing of the pendulum, metronome is also a pendulum, is considered to be one unity unit and 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 then the other side say, yeah no no we read the metronome numbers like today there is not really an in between here and that makes this this whole discussion so difficult and once if you accept the fact which is very easy to reconstruct by the way that metronome marks are accurate tempo indications and because you hear sometimes or actually a lot of people say yeah but Composers like Czerny is, is really uh, known for that. Uh, yeah, but he only gave those metronome numbers as a target, as a, as a goal. Those were not meant really to be reached, you know? That's not correct. Those composers, if you, whether you talk about Beethoven or you talk about in second rank or third rank or fourth rank composer, they were very serious in their tempo indications. And they had a very specific reason in that time Two reasons, actually. Yeah, sorry, yeah. go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead. So, so two reasons. First, notation became something that they could not rely upon solely anymore to just, re to just assume that the, that, the, that, the, that the performer still had, you know, based upon the notation only, the correct tempo in mind. And secondly, because the performers, even early 19th century, actually didn't care anymore about the intentions of the of the composer so composers were forced to give metronome numbers in order in the hope that musicians still would know what their intentions was and may, maybe even follow those intentions but that was very rare in that time wow and and do, do you attribute that to a rise of um you know, virtuosity and, and different, uh, or, or professional musicians who, um, who instead of, of playing their own things, um, to, uh, made it a career of playing, playing other people's things faster, better, um, more with, with more flair. Um, what do you attribute that to? Yeah, I think a couple of aspects. First of all, we come from the 18th century. We enter the age of enlightenment. And Beethoven advocated that very well, French sure. revolution, all that stuff. But it, this has a major consequence. It, 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 it changes the social uh, network, like the bourgeoisie was coming up. Basically, people who had not the, let's say, the cultural education that the nobleman, no, nobleman had, still like in their castles, and there was a tradition of, of museum music, suddenly you had conservatories, you had concert halls, and you had an audience that basically wanted to see, wanted to be entertained. So the musician, the performing musician became something like it was it was not even called a, a recital back even 18th century late 18th century it was called an exhibition the okay. performer was being exposed was being asked to have duels to and so in that context it's not surprisingly that musicians wanted to be the best by playing the fastest right. um, we have we have a wonderful quote just recently i i found that by by franz Liszt, and that will be a shock when i bring it on on on, on youtube but you can have the premiere of this so Liszt, who was uh, uh, 
this painting was made and I think end of the 30s and he said to the painter like basically we have three ways of playing okay. one is the authentic uh, uh, way that the composer intended his piece to be played secondly is the same but adapted to the new instruments mm -hmm. and thirdly he said it's basically like I have to play all the time for the audiences which is they want they want to hear a charlatan <laughs> right but if you think about it, this is very hard. And I wouldn't say that people who play like very fast and want to want to be technically very, I mean, uh, above everyone else, but as a charlatan, they cannot help it because we live in that time. But basically, that's the third way of list playing. The reason I think why he quit stage is still the version that we have today and was in the 19th century dominant. So, so you, you don't think he, he quit playing because he just wanted to focus on, on writing and composing. You think it had something to do with, with how um, music was being treated at that time with the public? Well, it's, I, of course, I cannot see in lists this right. and I don't know <laughs> if, if there is any letters that point to that. You know, this, this quote is really powerful and it is worth researching that and maybe, maybe someone can do that. For sure. But I think that he was on a point of his life as was, for instance, Marshallis was a little bit older, quit stage. I mean, um, uh, Chopin was, of course, very ill, but when did he play? There was, there was not, those musicians were not in demand anymore when they were focusing on making music. Mm -hmm. And Liszt was, of course, I think at that time in the, when he was around 1840 in a position that he could say, listen, I'm going to, 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 to Weimar or wherever and I become conductor and, you know, I play in private. And strangely enough, if you, if you then go further in time, because that's the interesting point, if you have these points and you can put them together, then you create a three-dimensional context. Later in 1876, we see another important musician, Charles-Marie Vidor, who was organist in the Saint-Sulpice in Paris, one of the major organists of that time. He was introduced by the organ builder Cavieco to Liszt. He was a famous networker, Caviecol. So he brought those two together. And so okay. Vidor uh, gave an introduction of the organ that Caviecol built at the Trocadero uh, Church in Paris. And Liszt was very impressed with the young Vidor. And he said, can I return the favor? And Vidor said, like, yeah, maître, eh? maestro, if I can just hear you practice just one hour. And, and Liszt said, even better, I'm staying in the castle of the Irards, the piano builders. So come over every week. I studied there from nine till 12 uh, before noon. And Vidor was there. And then he, he reported on that. And he said, it was the most beautiful period of my life, musically speaking, because Liszt played a lot of Beethoven, Schumann. And he played, stunningly enough, almost half as fast as we do today. Oh, wow. And now many people will say, yeah, but Liszt was old and he was, no, 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 no. Liszt at that time was on top of his abilities. When you read Clara Schumann, who was always a little bit jealous on Liszt, uh, when Liszt was in the company and Liszt played some scales and some sixths and some thirds, she was like freaking out, like the man never practiced anymore, but he's outperforming all of us. So he could play fast. Right. But it was when it, when it came really to the essential in the study room with the young widow there, he played basically in a tempo that cannot be different from the way that we are advocating to interpret the metronome numbers in. And so then everything becomes three-dimensional and then it becomes really fascinating because that then you're reconstructing a life, a, a real life reality, I would say. So, so um, 
I mean, I, I want to ask this kind of simplistic question, <laughs> um, but but uh, I'm sorry, my answers are always a little. No, bit I I love this is this is beautiful, and I really appreciate you. Again, I appreciate you going on. I love these stories. It's, it's exactly what I'm looking for. What, um, but so when we talk about a metronome, I mean, a lot of the the problems, um, as I understand it, that that you're saying is is that number one, it's not intended, and we know it's not intended because a lot of the, the things that were um, meant to be played quickly, fast, are unplayable. Like when you get to certain speeds, uh, you, you talk about the, the, the Cherny 299, for example, that, that literally gets to speeds that, that if you use those exact tempo markings are unplayable. So that's kind of um, in our mind that that's a problem. So how do we solve for that? And part of the solve, the, the solution is your, your whole, um, Whole beat. Whole beat. Thank you. Whole beat, yeah. whole beat method or, or um, you know, the, the idea of the metronome being a full pendulum beat. Um, how does that, um, like, for example, when I set a, met a metronome to 60, that's still my clicks are at 60 beats a minute. So help me understand when we go, I guess what I'm saying is when we play slower, when we have a slower piece um, and it says 60 or, or, or something, we're not playing at 30. How does that reconcile? Well, just very simple for your audience also to understand. When you have, for instance, the Opus 299, that, that's the famous journey book of etudes that I think all students have to play still today. Great exercises, by the way. We yeah. hate journey for a reason, but that's not him to blame for. It's the way we are teaching his music. So, for instance, for the first etude, he says presto, or allegro molto, I don't even know. I think it's presto, which is basically the same there. He says half note, 108. So basically that means if you take that literally every, every 108 click on the metronome, if that really would uh, indicate the half note, then we would have to play about 14 notes a second. Right. Which is not hard to imagine. That's not what he meant. Um, if we apply the pendulum system to the metronome, and there are some sources that strongly indicate that, not to, men, not to forget the Melzer directions itself from 1816, then what it actually does is very simple. The metronome ticks indicate the subdivision of the note value. Right. Uh, if, if we are teaching our kids in music school and we say we want to give time and they play a piece in quarter notes, we often will indicate the quarter note as one and two and three and four. And then the bar is over, four, four bar. But the one and are exactly right. the things that are indicated by the ticks. And that's called, the, that's called a period, that's a unity. And it right. goes back, of course, centuries. I can, we, we can talk for hours about this, but basically that it is. And then this music becomes playable. I would say the journey to try them in, in whole beat, what we can, so the full beat, two clicks per one note value. It's still not for everyone because right. there will still be seven to eight notes a second. And I can tell you that's for music school level, not easy. That's fast. Right. To, to maintain the clarity and maintain beauty, especially when you're, when you're trying to play rec, uh, correct articulations. And, um, well, and that's required because people, the prefaces of journey are oftentimes not published anymore. And it's hard to find them even. But if you find the original ones, he says for those etudes, like you start slow until you can play them in the tempo I indicated. 
So right. there are no targets. The, he wanted you to play those pieces like in tempo. And then you're looking at this and you say, oh my God, until 90 notes a second in the Opus 299. I have a source that's uh, in the indexing all the etudes of that time, like 1850 or so, was by a student, Max Bauer, a student of the son of Mozart. So very interesting. And he, he, he labels this journey etudes for the beginner level. I mean, really? <laughs> Right, uh, <laughs> fourteen. Well, and, and fourteen notes a second, and and well, and you, you have a really great uh, video that I that I saw um, showing this and 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 showing how um, even in some other parts of Cherny, you're playing up to twenty eight, twenty nine notes a second. Twenty nine, yeah. The, the record of Cherny is actually thirty notes a second. That I mean, which is unbelievably fast. <laughs> I mean, and to play it to play it with any kind of clarity at all is impossible. Um, which actually. Well, Go ahead. 30 notes a second. I mean, let's not, I mean, that's not that's fast. Not slow. <laughs> and that's, for a, that's for a very short passage in the Opus 31, number three, I think, where he says, even in the pianoforte school, and it makes it so great, he says, during that bar, don't slow down. I mean, basically, you will have to play 15 notes a second there for like one octave, which is possible. Right. But then you will feel that you come and at the end of your motoric ability, you cannot do that for two or three octaves. So, so what do critics of your ideas say? I mean, when they, when they see these tempo markings and they say, what do they say? That, that, that oh, of course, Cherny never meant those markings, really. I mean, is that, is that their argument? The, well, the critics, I would say on a serious level, um, because yeah, on YouTube you have you, you can imagine right everybody yeah everybody jumps into the comment section and, and suddenly becomes an expert. Not downplaying people who are commenting on my channel, <laughs> really not. But I mean that type that's that's common today. Well, everybody yeah, there's has. a difference between just like people spewing and, and talking and 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 people with you know who have studied this issue and and chiming yeah. in. But I would say people who are on a serious level, like on an academic level they have one magic word in their publications and i'm not kidding i mean i'm i'm not downplaying their value but the word is misprints wow yeah if you read for instance the book of Klaus Mealing, who is today still to be seen seen as the author on on baroque tempi i mean when he talks about the french sources the, the number of misprints that he attributes to those of the, those authors like mezen and all the others of the French classic academics. I mean, I mean that was the highest level we ever right. reached as humanity. And so he, they have to assume that a lot of these people just were having troubles with basically adding one to one equals two. Because that's what, yeah, but that's what we're talking about. They say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Journey metronome marks, yeah, I mean, yeah, what can we say? They were only meant as targets, or Beethoven's metronome was broken, or what have you. There is a deflection of the reality, and my point only is, let's guys, let's just take those metronome marks, because that's our time machine. The only consequence is, we'll have to look at our musical past completely different. And I can understand that's difficult. If you're, I mean, even I, I was working with Lorenz Guardian, the author of Stockton's on Pendelschlag, which is basically the, the guy who started everything on a serious level, is this, is this book. I, I knew him from 2010, and then he came here every, every year. He's a priest, so he spent his holiday with us. Okay. He's a great musician. It took me seven years 
before I realized that what, what he was writing is actually, there is no other reality that can be true. So if I need seven years, I can understand that for someone else it takes time. And I also can understand that if you have been publicizing your entire life on a certain system, or you have made 5,000 recordings according to a certain interpretation, that it's hard to say, mm, maybe I have to look it over again. Rethink. But that's the nature of wanting to go back in time. And I, I, if, if I can add something to that, it's, a very, it's very normal that we make mistakes because humanity is not yet ready to look back. Yeah. We are still looking forward all the time because that's in our nature. That's in our nature. If I sit, I'm, I'm working as an organ consultant, so as an architect to restore historical organs. But if I sit together with, our, with, with people in a church restoration where the organ is just part of the project, I mean, we have these old churches here in Europe and we re restore them. If, if things are preserved, we're not touching them. But if things are not preserved, I raise my finger and say, why not reconstruct that in the style of the church? And then everybody will look like, really? Really? We have to do something new. And then comes this entrance door in plexiglass, you know, I'm like an ugly artifact in this beautiful Baroque church. And people come in, ordinary people say, oh, what's this door doing here? But I mean, there's no one, no one yet ready to say, listen, me as an architect, I serve the idea of reconstruction. That's well, and it's, it, it's why we, you know, it, it's interesting because when we've, again, culturally, when we've heard something a, a certain way for so many decades and a century, I mean, we've heard things a certain way. Um, for example, the, the Chopin um, Opus 10 number one that I, that I saw on your YouTube channel, channel, you know, which is quite slow compared to anything you ever hear in a concert hall. Absolutely. Yeah. It, I mean, it's shockingly slow. Um, and, and, um, I, I'm curious, you know, because Chopin is an interesting case, Chopinalist, because they're kind of in that, um, what I, I think you, I think you would consider that part of during the, the, the change that was happening where we were moving to single beat. Um, am I right in, in, in saying that? It's a little bit more complex, but yeah, I right. know what you, yeah. So, so, so these are interesting where they kind of straddled both sides of the curtain a little bit, or, or, or we're probably, um, I think in your opinion, more in the, in the whole beat. Um, section, but but the the world was moving, and um, what uh, um, so that so that specific piece that Chopin ten number one that I heard you play, like I'd never heard anything quite like that, um, and and I'm curious what kind of reaction you get to that, or or or, or um, what what um, what what's the documentation, or how do you feel about when you play a piece that's so shockingly slow like that? <laughs> well. Yeah, there's a lot I can say to the right. topic. Certainly Chopin is, is, is one of the key figures, I would say, in reconstructing everything. But uh, there's, there are many levels to this. Um, for me, this is not so much of a shock. If you know that Chopin was a really Bach addict and that he was teaching the well-tempered clavier, so the well-tempered uh, keyboard, at those days still called the well-tempered clavichord, by the way. But if you then go to Bach's uh, first preludes, and you take just a third and you put it on top, then you have Chopin's etude. Once you see that, that relationship, once you compare the notation, then you say, okay, uh, the tempo ordinario for Bach, which is a normal tempo, which basically most people still play that today, that prelude of Bach 
about in my tempo for the Chopin etude. It's similar. He, what's the tempo indication of that, the first etude? I, I actually forgot, but it's something like Allegro. I don't, don't quote me on this. But then Chopin gives also accents on every quarter note. Huh. I mean, indicating tech on every, every quarter note. So all these things together, yeah, I mean, I can understand that people say, okay, when I hear Marta Argerich play this piece literally in single beat, she can manage that as, I mean, we're not talking about the most extreme pieces here. So right. some pieces are still possible to play according to what we call single beat, modern reading. I would say like 20 to 30% of the fast metronome marks, maybe of the known pieces we can manage, all the rest not. So there is 70% of the fast metronome marks, I would say, no, no way. And people are not playing like that either. So that's, that's, a, that's an important disclaimer to make mm. to your, your audience that what we advocate on our channel is not half as fast as we hear today. We don't hear a single beat performance practice for the simple reason that it's not possible. It's yeah, not possible. Yeah. So Chopin- And if it's not we, possible, I mean, if it were possible, it may not be listenable. <laughs> Well, we make sometimes, these, lately we had a video on um, Beethoven's fifth transcription by Liszt, so right. the symphony, which was, we do some co-publications with Wolfgang Weller, a, a pianist, so we publish some of his recordings on our channel. We did, so Alberto Sana, a young pianist who joined us, I did the fifth symphony on my old piano, I mean, reconstruction, reconstruction of an old piano in Czerny's transcription, fascinating, by the way, uh, very rarely played. Yeah, but then we could be, the people started comment like, yeah, but list uh, these transcriptions are are like the the pinnacle of virtuosity and like the way Wolfgang plays this. I mean, it's still not easy, but not so difficult. But then I took Katsaris, who basically became famous playing the list uh, Beethoven transcriptions, and I checked his tempi. Well, for the first movement, he is about there but for all the others is like 25 percent below beethoven's metronome mark even for an allegro movement and now yeah. that's not possible that's not possible that it's that a pianist of the level of Katsaris already with an allegro movement i mean that's almost in the half of the tempo range needs to slow down 25 percent then i digitally um, upgraded that that tempo to what beethoven had in mind and when you hear that from a pianist we are used to orchestra, but when right. you hear piano playing, then you will run away screaming. Like, really? <laughs> this is, this is like... And, and so, yeah, what other point can you make that then suddenly, yeah, okay, Liszt was not serious about the tempo, or it is a piano transcription. He didn't want you to play in that tempo. Yeah, but why does he publish the metronome marks done in his score? Right. Why does Jenny publish them? That's not an argument. You cannot make from the exception the general rule. And so, yeah, the, other, the only solution is then to apply the, what we call the WBMP, the whole beat metronome practice. But that's not easy to accept. I get the point, but that no, doesn't change So what, again, I want to go back to, to my question about, about slower pieces. Like, for example, the, um, the, the beginning of the Pathétique, um, you know, where, where you have this very slow section. Do, do you think that, um, that the... With the whole book, with the whole beat philosophy, um, that actually um, that that these these slower um, movements, these these uh, slower passages were meant to be played as slow as as you contend they they are. Absolutely, and you will hear the pathetic soon. 
And if you open your mind, it will, it will blow you away. I mean, we're talking here about the Grave, uh-huh. which is the slowest tempo you have. There's right. nothing slower than that. And just listen to performances today and think if that's the slowest character of a piece that you can have. So Alberto actually played that beautifully on, on, on the Fritz last week. And the thing is, of course, if you say to yourself, now I'm going to listen to this Pathétique de Grave and I'm going to hear why it is not possible, then you're closing your heart. There's nothing I can do for you. Right. But if you just sit down and say, let the music absorb me, of course it's a Pathétique, so if listeners want to go to the Pathétique in the future, we'll be here, I think, end of July on the channel. Take your time and take one week, every day one listen, and then you will convert it. But I give you one example of an interesting thing that happened. Um, we uh, looked at Hans von Bülow's score. So Hans von Bülow was a student of Clara, of Clara Wieck's father, uh, okay. and then later of, of, of Liszt. He writes at the, at the beginning of the Pathétique about same metronome number as Czerny, by the way. The 32nd note, so tam you have to perceptibly hear the, the gap, the articulation gap, like the Bach uh, prelude of the second book of the Well-Tempered Clavier. Well, this is a strong tempo indicator because you need to pom, 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 oh, and wow. suddenly you are in almost the French 18th century. Isn't that curious? And so all these things come together. Once you open your mind for it, you will start seeing things. That's important. Only when you accept this could very well be an historical truth. What many people do is just sit down at the piano at best, because many people just talk about it and not try things out, but then try to solve the problem while they are playing. And that doesn't work. You have like, like, like a doctor or researchers who invent a cure against, against this disease. They make it and they try it out and they see at the end if it worked or not. They're not, I mean, during testing the cure out, which is in our case playing, you have to try to make it work. Right. And when you do that, I can promise you, there is a world that opens for you that you say, how is it possible that we, that we have so much difficulties accepting this? How is that? How, how come? That is interesting because, yeah, I mean, you do have to, to sell out and, and, you know, allow, open your mind, open your heart to, to, um, to these new sounds because they are new sounds. And, and that actually brings me to, to another question, which is, um, again, almost an insolvable. Well, let me, let, me, let me back up a little bit. I want to ask a different question, and that is about technique and specifically pedaling technique because I think that's something that, that we don't talk about enough, both as players and teachers, and, and I rarely hear it from a historical standpoint. But what, um, talk to me about how, how these, these slower tempos, how they affect tempo, uh, pedal technique and, and, um, and what composers meant when they wrote their, their pedaling. That's, that's a very complex uh, issue, but generally speaking, I have to say just a little, little story here. When Alberto Sano, uh, the young guy, young Italian who knocked on my door, almost in the tempo of the Fifth Symphony, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, just kidding. But he, he, is, he is such a, I mean, he was so enthusiastic from the beginning. When he was playing for the first time on my Fritz pianoforte, he was pedaling all over the place. And I said to him, you're losing the individual quality of, of the tone, but of, but that's what may 
many pianists learn today, just pedal as long as it has some kind of clarity. Don't look into the score. Now, I asked him if he would be fine just by taking it a little back, the pedaling, and just try. And next time he came, he said, I have better news for you. For you. What if we stop saying that those composers were idiots, quote unquote, <laughs> and didn't know what they were writing about? Because, listen, if you go in the 18th century, like Beethoven sonatas, uh, half of them almost are composed in the 18th century, then there is a bridge period. And there the score doesn't have always pedal indication. But from a certain point, point in time, Beethoven started to indicate pedal indication. So, but yes, when you indicate pedal in a few places, what does it mean for the places where the pedal is not indicated? And so we took the philosophy lately. What would happen if we try to do that? Combine that with fingerings. We today are taught like fingering, finger substitutions, do it all. It was not a practice in those days. So we combine those two things, which is not easy. But it gives you this clarity in playing. It's unbelievable. The thing wow. is, you have to learn a new technique of releasing notes. What happens today is the pedal, the sustaining pedal, is the rescuer of fast playing. Pianists have not the time anymore to end the tone like in a quality way. The pedal will serve them as an ending of the tones. That's basically what it is. And you see that, I, yeah, I, I make the point anyway, you see that also in the early music movement. If people play on fortepiano or on a Steinway, it is not so much different because also fortepiano players are using the pedal all over the place. Wow. And it was wow. not a practice. When you open your mind for this, then you'll read in Czerny's uh, part four of the Pianoforte School. That's a part he published later as um, where, in which he gave insights in new music. And he gives an overview of keyboard, talks about the clavichord even, 1846. And he says pedal use, Thalberg was the, one, was the first in the 30s who used the pedal in a way to hold one note and play uh, play like ornamentation with, 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 his, with, with, with his hands. So people had the idea he had three hands. So if you think about this, that only in 1830, this became like a kind of modern practice. I mean, then we're traveling with Beethoven in a time that we have no, we have no, imagine how it was. Yeah. And pedaling, that's a great question. Pedaling is one of the kingmakers of WBMP because that is only possible in that tempo. That's at least I think. So, so, so in other words, you know, um, we could get somebody, some, some freak athlete, for example, that might be able to play at 29 beats a, a minute or something, or 29 beats a second or something. But there's no way you could pedal the way that's indicated. Um, well, well, no way. I wouldn't say that. But, it, you know, sometimes things come together. And yeah, right. This that comes makes together sense. in this way. Right. All these things, just like, okay, this is... If this is true and this is true, this is likely what's going on here is that, is that they're because playing these whole- Because you talk about pedaling, and we, had, we talked about Chopin, if I, if I may, but if you yeah. go to Chopin, he, I was taught in conservatory. I had lessons first from, from a teacher who studied in Poland, and I, I've said it a lot. Miraculously, if you study in Poland, you by default become a Chopin specialist. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's 
in a way it's ridiculous, but that's how it works. Right. I mean, as if we have somewhere still on this planet the Chopin traditional life. I'm sorry for people listening from Poland, but that's not true. No one was there. Chopin doesn't live anymore anyway. Right. <laughs> He's long gone. But he was still telling me all the way, Chopin's pedaling, he was known for his pedaling, which is true. He was very accurate with his pedaling, which is true. And if you look into his scores, he was very accurate in his pedaling. It's like one measure here, then stop here, then again there. I have to tell you, I was always puzzled with his pedalings because at first they don't make sense. Mm -hmm. They really don't make sense. Just look at them closely. And I mean, be sure to have a kind of original score because they are changed always. Sure, sure. But it ties into this tone quality, which you also with Chopin will only get if you just bring it down a little bit huh. and then it works and then it works. Well, and, and I, that actually brings me to another question, which is, which has to do with the instruments themselves. And, and one of the things I do also appreciate about your channel is you have this wonderful assortment of, of historical instruments that you play. I mean, they're gorgeous and they sound beautiful, but they sound way different than our modern instruments. And, yeah, and, um, and clearly, like, I, I, I've, I sincerely believe Beethoven, for example, had a, had a vision of what the piano could someday become because he writes things that are impossible on the pianos that he wrote, you know, that he wrote for at the time. Um, but how does, how, do play, how does playing on modern instruments um, affect how we interpret these tempo markings and, and these, these, um, these tones that we're trying to create that were only heard on these, on these historical instruments. How does that affect what you're, what you're yeah, trying to well, do? That's an interesting point you bring up. Firstly, I would say Beethoven, until I found a work that somehow corrects me, has never written something that was not possible on his piano. I mean, <laughs> he, would, he would be a very big idiot if he would write music that only was sounding great 50 years later. So that's, I cannot blame you for having that idea because it, it was with me also when I was in Amsterdam, yeah. still young guy. We had all this, yeah, the Steinway is the, no, the Steinway is a different instrument. It serves different music. Right. Now, another question, and people from the early music would, uh, movement would like, they call me really an idiot when I say this, but I think it's true. When Beethoven would have lived 200 years, he would today play the Steinway. There is no doubt about that. Why do I know? Because I don't, do not see one single composer musician in the history that chooses for an instrument that was 50 years before him. Bill. Right. <laughs> so uh, Bülow played on a German later piano. I mean, you know what I mean. You always, hey, we're all, we all love great gear. We want the best and greatest stuff. <laughs> well, the thing is, they composed also different music. They didn't compose Beethoven sonatas anymore. So to say that my Fritz copy here that I have of the Frenzel is an original 1825. They, the clavichord here is a copy of a mid 18th century clavichord. Those instruments were perfect. There is nothing in that concept you can change. And that's something, the Irar here is an instrument. Well, you can say this time it sounds um, a little bit st uh, stronger, but has also a more a fatter tone, I would say. The Irad is still very linear, very transparent. So by changing the instrument, you gain something and you lose something. So, but having said all of that, you can't play in this way on the Steinway. 
and and that's something that also Alberto he's coming from this from this mainstream performance practice I mean the guy started in Colburn like a private school is the highest level of piano that we are talking about so he hopefully in the future will will make also the bridge with modern piano playing to show that this way of playing is not only for the historical instruments you can do that and maybe sometimes if your piano is in a very dry acoustics that you want to have a little bit more pedal or whatever that you adapt it a little bit to the to another instrument that's fine but the basics can be the same and the basics for me and we come back to the beginning of our our, our, our talk is the tempo i mean i rather listen to beethoven on a steinway in the correct tempo than on an old uh, hammerflügel in the wrong tempo because changing tempo changes everything and certainly the character of the music so yeah i hope that 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 clarifies a little bit yeah that's that is very interesting i, I appreciate your perspective on that that's that's huge um you also have a a series of recordings um available on your website you want to talk about that for a minute and and, and what you have available for people who want to come and support you yeah that's great so sometimes people come on in the comment section and say yeah all this talk about this talk about tempo why not play well we have now i think 279 recordings available on our channel and i must say i was i'm consistent i was consistent with this from the start of my youtube channel basically started my youtube channel just just to share music i played the clavichord only at the at the time um but you know as a musician you play and then the beauty just disappears and I thought yeah I have this camera that can film so why not film myself when you have this platform 2014 uh, I actually started to think about it 2013 a little bit too late but YouTube was not YouTube of today it was still very early on and I yeah you can check my oldest videos like yeah if you really want to have a good laugh then it's great to see <laughs> But it was a great thing because suddenly um, my first video I know had 30 views in two weeks. But then suddenly, except from my friends and my mother, there was someone else who came on the channel and say, hey, great recording. I thought, really? How did you find this? And so people started to ask for other music, for other things. And before I knew it, I had a little community that was was really fun to work with. And of course, yeah, then suddenly came the, the idea of, of, uh, of this, this pianoforte, which I had for a long time, recording Beethoven. And then I had a long conversation with my wife, Anya, and said, listen, I have to explain people why I am playing like this. Because if I play the Waldstein the way I do, and now actually Alberto recorded that, so I'm going to record the Waldstein too, but anyways, it doesn't matter. Then people will say, yeah, listen, but why are you playing that so slow? So I took the decision. They're all going to think you're Glenn Gould. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> an honor to me, but because I really adore. Oh, he's tempo. amazing. But basically, what I would say is like, yeah, you can play like that, but basically, you behave like a clown because we don't, we know it's not like that. While all this research of 20, 30 years is behind. So yeah, then I took the decision. You, we bring it on the channel, and that basically started what it became today. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. And I've listened to several of them. I look forward to listening to more. I would strongly encourage. Um, our uh, you know our listeners to to check out authentic sound on youtube or authenticsound.org and 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 look at the the vast material you have a, a lot of written material there too where you where you go into um you know a lot of these historical um ideas and 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 what your thoughts on them are <clears throat> excuse me 
Um, we have again with us Vim Vinters uh, from AuthenticSound.org, and I, I want to just finish off by, by by giving you a few minutes. Just just what what um, what can people if people were to either play or listen to your recordings, um, something that's done in, in in this whole time kind of kind of um, paradigm, um, what should they expect to hear? And 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 how would you how would you recommend people go about listening to that? That's a great question. And it's a question that your listeners only can answer for themselves. If, if you open yourself for the idea, I mean, I would say go first, listen to some theoretical videos that we make about sources and see if what I'm saying makes sense. Um, do I look like an idiot? Maybe some, some say I do. I mean, uh, and, 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 and worse than that, I wouldn't mind. But of course, then, then the music will not work. Uh, go to go to listen to the Fifth Symphony. Go listen to the trio that we recorded uh, lately, uh, uh, Beethoven's Trio Opus 38, and see what the music does with you. And if you're a musician, go sit down at your piano or your instrument and just play, experiment. Um, don't take for granted what people say, what teachers say, like those metronome marks of Czerny, don't pay attention. He, the guy didn't know what he wanted. It was just like for publicity. No, try them out for yourself and see what the music does. Again, we're talking about reconstruction of a time that's pre-industrial. Just think about it. Do we run the 100 meters slower than 100 years before? And just think about it. Once you see that, you start to, it starts to, to deconstruct by itself. And the great thing, and then I, I close with that, the great thing is, yeah. I cannot underline this enough, once you have seen, more once you have felt the enormous emotional power that this music had originally as we think there is no way back you want to stick there it's a musical paradise someone have people on the channel who say even even if this is theory is turns out to be wrong i will never be able to go back to faster performances but good news is the theory is not wrong and we will <laughs> prove that in the new book that we are writing and hopefully publish this year that will be oh. a really work. Yeah. yeah i look forward to that and, and i've so enjoyed having you on the show i i hope we can do this again it's been a pleasure pleasure and, for uh, me too thank you oh, for having me i'm glad i'm glad you enjoyed it and, and so again this is mike levitt with um, and if love remains you can find more information about and if love remains at www.andifloveremains.com we have a, a a little bit of a merch thing so if you need a um, a face mask or and if love remains mug you can, you can pick one up there we're very grateful for oh and you can find information for vin and uh, and his organization at authentic sound Dot org, um, as well as the Authentic Sound YouTube channel. Again, we want to thank him for being on the show. Look forward to, let's do it again, shall we? Thank you so much, sure. All Pleasure. right, sounds great.